This morning, I want to introduce to you Don Clebb. Uh, Don uh, is another Canadian. He was raised uh, in Winnipeg, Canada. And uh, he has been preaching and teaching in Texas for about 25 years. And he and Paula have been, his wife, have been attending Stonebriar for five years now. Uh, several of you know Don from uh, Frisco Lakes, where he teaches a um, Bible study uh, for the community. So if you don't know him, try to drop by after class and meet him. They have uh, four children, seven grandchildren, and Don says if you want to see pictures that uh, Paula has several of them with her. So, welcome, Don. Good morning. It's an honor for me to be here this morning in front of this marathon class. I appreciate whatever series of events led to my being invited. Uh, I would like to say a word to the other two first-time couples. Uh, it's usually better than this, um, so don't, don't judge the class necessarily by what you hear this morning. Um, I've heard always good things about this class, and I, I too am disappointed by the fact that uh, uh, Stan is not going to be here today, although in all, all honesty, I have kind of mixed feelings about that because I was talking to Ed Faulkner at the golf course this week. Uh, we call him Weird Ed out at Frisco Lakes, but should I have not mentioned that, Ed? But anyway, and he said that uh, Dr. Toussaint tends to sit at the front and he has cards that he holds up with numbers on them reflecting on how he thinks you're doing. And I said, well, does he have any minuses? And, and he said, I, I don't know. I've never seen one. So we won't have to worry about that this morning. And one other thing, right before we began, I was uh, visiting with Tony uh, Camarada at the back, and he pulled out his phone and showed me the storm. We are right on the edge. The, the worst is yet to come. Are you aware of that? It's, uh, it, it looked like a pretty interesting mass that was coming this way. And then he said, but hey, if a storm does hit, if the sirens go off, this is the designated room where people come. If that happens and people come, we're counting them in the attendance this morning, okay? I think that's only fair, that if they're in here, they should count in the attendance. We're going to be looking this morning, you have an outline, I think, we're going to be looking at a passage in Luke chapter 8. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It is a unique story in the sense that it is a miracle within a miracle. I always like the two for the price of one thing. My wife can tell you that, but that's kind of what we get in this story. Uh, there is a parallel in Mark chapter 5. Uh, there are two details from Mark's account that sometime during the lesson I'll be mentioning that Luke does not mention. But I think they're pretty important details, and I'll mention them as we go on. Let's, let's read the section together, beginning at verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Just then, a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter 
a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me. I know that the power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Uh, Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but He ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. The story begins by talking about the return of Jesus. Do you remember where he had been? He and his disciples had gone to the other side of the lake, to the territory of the Gerasenes. And on that trip, there had been a tremendous amount of power displayed. For instance, on the way over, Lake Galilee did what Lake Galilee sometimes does. It became raucous and the waves and the wind were overpowering. And the disciples were afraid and Jesus calmed the storm, stopped it in its tracks. And when they were on the other side, there was a man who was possessed by many demons, so many that they called him Legion. And Jesus cast all of those demons out of him, and they entered a herd of swine and ran down the hill and were drowned. I don't know if it's the pigs, the demons, or both, but anyway. No one to that time had been able to help this man. His life was horrific. He lived up in the caves and scared people. And now he's calm and in his right mind. And everyone there, well, they're amazed 
But they're also fearful. They've never seen anything like this. And they asked Jesus nicely if he would leave. And that's the reason why Jesus now finds himself on this side of the sea. And when he gets back, he finds a group that is eager to see him. Remember, the Gerasenes had said, please go away on this side of the lake. We're so glad you came back. But there's one man in that group who is especially glad. He is a synagogue ruler who has come to see Jesus. I like to see scenes in my mind, and so bear with me. First of all, you need to know that there is a general tension between Jesus and his disciples on the one side and synagogue people on the other. I don't know how to describe synagogue people except people who, who led the synagogue, who were associated with the synagogue, because already in Luke's gospel there are at least two stories that are told in which there is this significant tension between Jesus and synagogue. The one in chapter 4 when his ministry is just beginning and he gets to read the text. He gets to teach the marathon class like I am today, okay? And they give him the scroll, and he reads that passage from Isaiah, and everybody thinks, boy, that guy can read. And then he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and they thought, what? In fact, things turned so ugly that they took him out of the synagogue to a brow of a hill and were ready to throw him off and kill him. That's how fast it can turn. I'm worried about that myself here. But Luke simply says that he, he walked through there. I, I, I'm trying to tell you that was the beginning of this tension. But then in chapter 6, he was in the synagogue one day, and, and the leaders of the synagogue, the teachers of the law, were there watching him. Because there was a man in the synagogue who had a withered arm, and they wondered, would he dare heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus stood up in that synagogue and said, you know, I was just wondering, what's the best thing to do on the, on the Sabbath day? Is it to heal, would that, to heal people, to do good on the Sabbath? Is that good? And, and nobody said anything. <laughs> so Jesus healed him and he became whole. Luke, describing their reaction to that event, says they were furious. Not upset, furious. So what I'm trying to get you to see is between synagogue people and Jesus, there is this tension, this opposition, and yet Jairus gets up one morning and he's getting dressed and his wife says, are you going out? He said, yes, I am. Where are you going? I'm going to go try to find Jesus. What? She's not getting any better. It looks like she's going to die. We've got to do something. I've heard things about Jesus. I have heard how he manifests power. Maybe he can help our little girl. But you're a synagogue ruler, Jairus. You can't. I'm going. I'll try not to get emotional here, but I'm, I need to tell you something. I, 
I have a son named Jonathan, and when he was 12 years old, he got sick. He started throwing up for four days. All he did was throw up. And we would take him to the doctor, and we would take him to the emergency room. We don't know what it is. In four days, he lost 17 pounds. He was 12. And I remember getting up on Sunday night at church with tears in my eyes and pleading, does anybody know anybody who might be able to help my son? Amazingly, a young lady who was a nurse came forward and said, this doctor that I know, yeah, yeah. And he was the answer. But what I want you to understand is, and surely you know, you have children, you have grandchildren. When you're desperate, when it looks like you've, you're going to lose them, you'll do nearly anything. And that's what Jairus did. He not only came to find Jesus, when Jesus returned from the other side and was being greeted by everyone, it says that Jairus came and fell down at the feet of Jesus. A synagogue ruler falling down at the feet of, well, you know, and begged for his daughter's life. By the way, that's really the only way you come to Jesus, isn't it? Is <laughs> to fall down at his feet because you've got no resources of your own. It's like the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross, I cling. And, and all he had, and he realized it, was to take a risk on Jesus. And Luke doesn't tell us what, what Jesus said. He just simply says that they just made the decision to go toward Jairus' house. Well, it just so happens that on that particular morning, someone else had made a decision. She doesn't know Jairus. He doesn't know her. But she's also made a decision. She probably lived by herself, and so she couldn't discuss why she was going to Jesus. But we know because Luke tells us. She was a woman who was miserable. Her life was miserable because for 12 years, she had been hemorrhaging. The Deuteronomic Code says, well, it calls it usually an issue of blood, but it, it says several things about that woman. She's unclean, which means she can't go to the temple, she, and anybody she touches is unclean, so you're not having her over for 42 on Friday night, if you understand what I mean. Spiritually, socially, and in every other way you can imagine, her life is filled with misery. She decides, I'm going to risk. But she can't do really what Jairus does, that is to say, come openly and fall at the feet of Jesus, because you see, she was an outcast in her society, and so she disguised herself 
Probably not the mustache and glasses, you know, that we might use. But she disguised herself, kind of covered herself so no one... And it's so ironic that with all of this crowd around Jesus, that's what it says, you know. In fact, Luke uses the word that they were crushing, (laughs) crushing Jesus. There were so many people. With all these people around, and she is working her way through the crowd. And everybody that she's touching is now unclean. (laughs) She's desperate. She's willing to try anything. And finally, she gets close enough and reaches between two people and touches just the edge of Jesus' garment. And I don't know how this works. But the text says immediately she realized that she had been healed. Something felt different. She doesn't say it might have helped. I was instantly healed and she knew it. And see Jesus as just for a moment he pauses and says, excuse me. I believe someone just touched me. Come on. (laughs) There's a little humor in that if you'll just see it. When people are crushing you, you don't ask, who touched me? And the disciples tried to explain that to him, and Peter voiced, Lord, (laughs) touched you. Come on. Everybody's touching you. No. No, somebody touched me in a different sense. I felt the power leave me. Now, who was it? And all of these blank faces. No one said anything. And Jesus, reminding me of a sixth grade school teacher I had once, said, Fine, we're not going anywhere. Until someone admits they touched me. Remind me of the school teacher because he said, we're not going anywhere until someone confesses who arranged this. Fine. You know, we're all having to stay in detention unless I admit it. So I did. But anyway. And I don't know how long they stood there, but I mean, it was tense. And finally... The woman came forward trembling. And Luke says, did you notice she fell at his feet, just like Jairus had done. She fell at his feet and said, I did it. I was desperate. I touched you and I'm healed. Man, now that's a robe. Did y'all ever watch The Robe with Victor Mature? Come on, y'all are old enough to have watched The Robe. Don't try to act like, boy, that old movie? I don't think so. Well, it was just kind of what you'd thought, you know, the the robe that Jesus wore and everybody needed to have it because it had all the... No, no, no. Jesus makes it very clear what happened. He said, your faith 
has made you well. It wasn't the robe. Your faith has made you well. Now you might say, but no, no, Jesus. Okay, just but listen to what Jesus said. The fact that you made a decision to risk no telling what, to come and get near me just to have this chance, says a great deal about you. And if you read the Gospels with sensitivity and watch for it and listen for it, I'm telling you, that's the kind of thing that Jesus was looking for. That's the kind of thing that he tended to upbraid his disciples about, like in the boat. Where's your faith? He came looking for people who were so desperate for him that they would do anything. And he found one in the most unlikely candidate, this outcast in society who disguised herself just to get near Jesus. Now, I want to tell you something. You don't have to know this to go to heaven, but so, you know. Luke is a doctor. One of his favorite words that he uses in his miracles is the word sozo, which is a word that means, depending on the context, either healing or saving. Now, if you, if you ever ask me again, there are other stories in Luke in which Jesus employs these words when he speaks to the person who is changed. Let's all say it together. Not necessary. Sesokin is a form, a past tense of the word sozo. It means, hey, pistis, the faith of you has. Well, translators sometimes are at a loss. Is this healed? Is this saved. Dr. Luke, when he writes, I think, has a smirk on his face because he doesn't necessarily want them to choose. There is something going on there. Since I pointed out that Luke was a doctor, and you know that, I should probably point out that one of the details in Mark's gospel He said that this woman who had suffered with this hemorrhage for 12 years, it says she had spent all of her money on doctors. Luke doesn't mention that. I I don't know why. Maybe he thought it was an unimportant detail. So not only is she an outcast, but she's broke because she had gone to doctor after doctor after doctor and no one had been able to help her. But Jesus says, your faith has definitely healed, but maybe more. You're never, you're never sure with Luke, but that's another story. I, I know we have to quit at 10.30, so I'll, I'll, I'll go on. I'm kidding, I know. 
When the band starts playing, well, let's just all join in. It'll be fine. Well, try for a moment while all of this scene is going on. Try to imagine the chagrin of Jairus. He has come to Jesus and for the, for the first time in days, perhaps, there's a ray of hope because the teacher has agreed to come to his house. But almost immediately after pronouncing the blessing of healing and maybe salvation to this woman because of her faith, here comes a messenger from Jairus' house. And uh, the look on his face, we know. Um, Sir, um, the little girl, your little girl, she, she died, I'm sorry. You don't have to trouble the master anymore because, you know, you brought him to take care of her and now it's too late, I'm, I'm sorry. And you can almost hear the cumulative <gasps> from the crowd. Jairus is a very popular synagogue leader. The people are with him on this. And now, just because some woman slowed it down, it's too late. And then the look on Jesus' face, wait, wait, no, wait. Don't, don't give in to fear. You need to keep on believing, which is what the Greek text says. You, you, you believed when you came, and, and, and as we were traveling, you believed just because you got this report. Don't give up hope and let fear take over. She'll be okay. She'll be healed, I'm telling you. And Jairus, with, I'm sure, somewhat mixed feelings, as in, I believe, help my unbelief. That's another story, but I'm sure it's the way Jairus felt. They continued on to his house, and when they get there, it's quite a scene. The Jews sometimes hired mourners to come, but this is such, I mean, they haven't had time to do that yet. I believe it's the relatives, it's the friends, it's the neighbors. They've gathered there at the house to show their support. And before the messenger left the house to come and tell Jairus, I'm sure he told all the people who were standing around, she's gone. She's just gone. And when Jesus walks up toward the house, he can hear the wailing, the mourning. I mean, this is a 12-year-old girl just on the brink of womanhood with all kinds of potential. Gone. And Jesus says, don't cry. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Now, I'm not sure we can, we can get the full grasp of what that would have meant in that context. 
But Luke makes it pretty plain how the people reacted. They laughed at him. And I'm sure there were a few, what an idiot. Because Luke says, they knew she was dead. They knew it. Now, in ministry, I've had a couple of occasions to be in the room when people died. Have you? And I remember this one man specifically whose breaths were very shallow. He was very sick. And his son was standing at the bedside facing me, and I could see the son, and I could see the father behind him, and he stopped breathing and I waited just a few seconds and I said I think your father just passed away and he turned and looked and looked for breath just like I had been watching there was none and he went and called the nurse and and they came running and they pulled the sheet up over his head because he had died and I'm just trying to say (laughs) there's a big difference between being really sick and dead and they knew she was dead so who in the world comes in here and tries to say something ridiculous like this she's just asleep Jesus says Peter James John y'all come with me he had a bit of a Texas twang sometimes Jesus didn't you You guys come with me. Mom, dad, come with me. And they walk into that little girl's room where I'm sure she was laid out there on the bed and looked very dead. And Jesus took her by her little cold hand and said, "Uh, little girl, get up. Another detail in Mark. Some of you may want to read Mark 5 to get the good details. But Mark tells us what the exact Aramaic phrase that Jesus used when he spoke. Luke gives it to us in Greek, you know, which is translated to English. But but in Mark's gospel, because it's in Aramaic, the translator said, well, we shouldn't translate that. We should just... Talitha? Which means, little girl, get up. But, but, but Jesus said, Talitha, which means, little girl, kum. Which is exactly what a mom or a dad would have said to a little girl when it was morning time and whether she was supposed to get up for school or to do her chores or whatever. It was just the way you greeted a child in the morning. Talitha, come, time to get up. And I don't know how long it took or what the expression on the parents' faces was, but all of a sudden her eyes opened. And I wasn't there, but I'm sure I can tell you that Peter, James, and John's eyes got a little bigger too. And the parents, it says they were astonished in the NIV. They were astonished. Why? Because they knew she was dead, just like everybody else did. And Jesus says, 
it seems strange, really, I guess, but um, why don't you get her something to eat? <laughs> well, assuming that she had been sick for some time, she probably, if she was like my son who threw up for four days, she needed to eat. Why don't you get her something to eat? And then he tells the parents, oh, by the way, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Come on, that's funny. Don't, don't tell anyone what happened here today. And the mourners on the outside who had laughed in derision. Y'all keep this under your hat. How's that going to work? I can just see one of them the next day. I tell you, Agnes, she was dead. Six people walked into that room and seven people walked out. And one of them was a dead girl. I know I don't know how it happened, but I tell you this, she was dead. How do you keep something like that? And why would you want to? If you know the story of the Gerasenes, that demoniac, that legion guy who had been cured, you know what he's told? Go back home. Tell the home folks what the Lord has done for you. Spread it around. It's good news. But here, no, no, Shh. don't tell. Luke doesn't tell us the reason for that, so I can make one up. Um, our Lord is always working on his Father's timetable, and it's not time yet. And there's a tremendous danger of messianic fever breaking out to the extent that they're going to want to try to do something that Jesus is not ready for anybody to do. Over there among the Gerasenes, they don't have messianic fever over there. But we can't risk it here. So keep it under your hat. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that somebody talked. How would you keep that quiet? It's a story of contrasts, isn't it? The contrast between Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and the woman with the hemorrhage of blood is marked. He's the guy who makes the announcements in the synagogue, takes prayer requests, assigns the reading. She's not allowed to come in. She's unclean. Don't even think about coming in here he's wealthy prominent people love him she's dirt poor an outcast a nobody and Luke wants us to understand and I hope we do that they had one thing in common they desperately needed Jesus. And as I look at us here today, we're all a little bit different. Some are more different than others. Ed is, you know, well, anyway. It's 
okay, Ed. But we're different. We come from different backgrounds. We had different upbringings. We have different relatives. You know, we're different. But we all have this same common need for Jesus. That's, that's what brings us together. And I couldn't help but notice in the announcements today or the prayer or, or both, you know, if we can just, just get the simple gospel story to people, why? <laughs> because they all have one thing in common. They have a desperate need for Jesus. Whether it's the bank president or the biker who has no, it, it, it doesn't matter. A lot of contrasts in our world and the one thing they have in common is Jesus. And both of these people, notice, both of these people took a huge risk. The synagogue ruler falling at the feet of someone who was despised by most synagogue people, that's a risk. The woman who wasn't allowed to touch anybody but pushed her way through the crowd, that, that was a risk. They needed Jesus and there needed to be a risk to find him. And sometimes I just want to say to people who have bumped into a wall every which way in the world in life. Why don't you just try Jesus? Come on. Take a risk. We hope they will. Secondly, there is a contrast between the despair of the mourners and the optimism and the hopefulness of Jesus. You can almost see the crowd who is following with Jairus and Jesus just, just sink in despair. Oh, no, not that word. Not she's dead. No, wait, Jesus says, wait. Don't give in to fear. Just continue to believe. Guess who was right? I want to mention one other thing. I know you'll hate it if I quit early. Believe it or not, I have run into people who find this story to be a little difficult and confusing for them. And I'll tell you why. Because they had a child who was very sick. And they begged the Lord. And he died or she died. You know anybody like that? You might be somebody like that. Well, it doesn't have to be specifically that, but something that had just encroached on your life and made life unbearable for you. And you begged for relief. And for whatever reason, it didn't come. And, and I don't know the reason. But the hero of our story still speaks a word of optimism to all of us, because 
You don't get this from reading the story, but you figure it out, don't you? The woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years who was healed, she died. The little girl who was raised from the dead, maybe she went to college, I don't know, but she died. We all do. And thank God that there is one who speaks a word of hope and optimism to us about death and dying. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul was writing about the resurrection, he said, you know, if it's, if it's just in this life, that we have hope, well, oh my goodness, pity us. But our hope transcends this life. We believe in one who said, the hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come forth. And I would just say to you, that is the word of hope that I believe the Bible brings to every one of us. Thank God that there are times when prayers are answered and people are made well. And But to some, it just seems unfair that some prayers just aren't answered. And people are left confused and sometimes unsettled because... One of the things I like about when Chuck talks about stuff like this, he'll say, I don't know. Because <laughs> guess what? He doesn't. Nor do we. But we still risk and come to him in faith. It's a risky business to come to Jesus in faith and fall at his feet and say regardless of what this life brings I trust you for my eternity because there are lots of people in the world who will laugh in derision at that don't despair keep believing that's the message from Jesus Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, these stories that have been preserved for us are not only, I know, to show us how wonderful and powerful the Son of God is, but also, Father, to give our spirits enlightenment and help us to hope even when hope seems difficult. Only through Jesus, and it's his name we pray. Amen.